Well, good morning again. It's great to be in worship with you. I am sure we've got your attention now with talk of lust and hell. Um, and I'll try to unpack that passage for us in a way that, that makes sense, in a way that hopefully we can see, see Jesus more clearly. Um, is anyone out there, I, I risk offending the, the medical community here and the doctors that are in attendance with us, but anyone out there a little bit underwhelmed when you go to the doctor's office for a checkup? They uh, tell you you should get one every six months or 12 months, and then you arrive and they pull out that little rubber mallet and they tap on your, your knees. Maybe they have you stand on one foot and uh, cover an eye, make sure you can stand up straight. Um, then they ask you about your bowel movements, which is always an interesting question. Maybe they take some blood, but even then, there's a thousand things that could be going on inside your body that wouldn't have come out during that checkup. Lent is the time of year that we do a more thorough examination of our spiritual life, that we go deeper than just the surface issues and asking ourselves, are we healthy spiritually? Lent is sort of the the spiritual MRI or CAT scan. I don't know, are those two things the same thing? I'm not sure, but I know they look inside the body, spiritual x-ray. And What we've been doing is we've been looking at the seven deadly sins is not just concluding, well, you should stop that. You should stop being greedy. You should stop being angry. You should stop now this week lusting. But instead, using these sins as diagnostic tools, as an MRI for our soul to ask, how are we really doing? Our spiritual lives as a church, as individuals, as families, are they healthy or not? And this morning, we come to lust. So let me pray for us. Let me pray for myself that God would help us because we're going to need it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we tread upon this third rail of sins, that you would help us to tread firmly where we should and lightly where we should. That this sin, this this sermon risks offending everyone and no one. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us, that your spirit would be with us, that wherever we're coming from this morning, whatever our sexual past is, whatever our sexual relationships are presently, whatever our sexual struggles are, that you would meet us with the hope of the gospel, that you would turn us towards Jesus, that we would hear more than just don't do that, but that we would hear your grace at work and that we would be diagnosed by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard the or seen the the ads for the Las Vegas Convention Bureau. Uh, It's what happens here stays here. And there's this uh, one commercial that I found really uh, interesting and funny. Uh, There's a yard guy, and he's finished mowing the lawn of his customer, his regular customer, and he comes up to the porch and he says, well, that'll be $75. And the homeowner is astonished. 75 It was $30 last week. And he says, yes, but I was in Vegas last week and I was having a good time. And I noticed that you were there too and you were really having a good time. Oh, $75? Okay, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Great job. The promise of this ad is this place of unrestrained pursuit of our desires. 
and that it's a shame that we live in such a prudish culture with all of its laws and taboos. So come visit a place where no one is looking. And this ad appears to be working. A friend of mine in ministry sat with a guy in his office who confessed to him that he had been to Las Vegas and had dropped over $40,000 over a three-day weekend. And that's probably not that unusual in Las Vegas, except this guy probably made around that in a year. So he blew $40,000 in three days, basically a year's salary, and he didn't lose it gambling. He spent it on limos and a luxury suite and extravagant dinners and drinks and on women. And his story tells us something about lust. It tells us that lust is not only about sex. It's not only about physical pleasure. That he didn't just pay for sex, he paid for attention. He paid for someone to tell him he was interesting. He paid for someone to look at him and give him approval, even as fleeting and illusory as it was. He spent his money to feel special. He spent his money to be somebody. We have a very complicated relationship with sex. And before we get to the text, we need to diagnose a few of the distortions that we swim in in our culture. Some of the common de facto beliefs that, though contradictory, that we hold almost without criticism. And if you're new to Christianity, if you're exploring belief, if you're here for the very first time, please know that I understand, I realize that the church has a very checkered past in terms of speaking about issues of sexuality. We speak very loudly about them, and it's usually about the sins outside of our walls rather than inside. And maybe you've been hurt or shamed or made to feel unacceptable because of your sexual history, or maybe there's abuse in your past and you've been told to keep it quiet because you don't want to mar the image of Jesus. You don't want to call someone into question. And so you've been carrying around a great deal of shame and hurt, and maybe that's connected with the church. And so I want to tread very, very carefully. But I pray that this sermon will provide some space for healing, not only for those of us who are hurt, who are shamed, but for all of us, those of us who maybe are married and have a happy marriage. And we've done all of, we made all of the right sexual choices, and yet that we should remember that we too are broken sexually. Jesus in this passage isn't interested in simply curtailing or changing your sexual behavior, but he talks about sexuality just as he does money, just as he does anger, just as he does food as an invitation to grace, as an invitation to step more, more fully closer to him. And to use this lens of sexuality as a way of uncovering the perspectives and behaviors that may be actually impoverishing our own lives. And so, three distortions, three things we need to address, and then we'll talk about what Jesus is leading us to believe instead of those. One is that sex is a categorical imperative. It's like food or oxygen that you can't live without sex. If you don't have access to sex, that life isn't quite complete. And it's almost impossible for us to recognize in our culture a person who would choose not to be married or not to have sex or be limited physically from having sex and yet still have a full and happy 
and fulfilled life. Meg Wolitzer, who is a writer, wrote a column in the New York Times who relays a conversation that she overheard with a wife stating that she would pay for a prostitute to sleep with her husband because she simply wasn't interested in having sex any longer. And Wolitzer says that it was so jarring, not because of the unfaithfulness part necessarily, but the thought that someone would choose to close down this vital part of their lives. And she says, I think the culture is still weirdly prurient about the idea of other people, particularly women, not having sex. Because we're all post-Freudians, it's as if we live, it's as if we still believe that sex equals strength, sex equals health and life, and therefore no sex equals weakness and illness and death. One of the distortions that we have to unearth is that sex is this categorical imperative, and that the Bible actually applauds and has categories for people who don't have sex. Not only children, but people who are called to be celibate in order to live in a different way, in order to be more, more fully engaged with the mission of the gospel. That that's a very viable and richly fulfilling way of life. Second distortion, sex is merely a physical experience. And this is where you sort of see some overlap and contradiction. That sex can be disconnected somehow from our emotional and our spiritual lives. That it's just a bodily connection that causes our brain to produce dopamine. The Boston Globe had an article that was entitled, Hooking Up is All the Rage, But Is It Healthy? And they quoted a 19-year-old girl and says, You feel hollow and empty the next day, hoping the guy will call or text, knowing that he isn't going to, and then pretending to yourself and to your friends that you don't care. In our car, when we load up, we barely have our seats on before one of our kids asks for the radio to be turned on, and it's one of the the popular stations. And what are these songs about? They're not about work. They're not about a good vacation. They're not about gazing at a sunset. Because jobs are important, vacations are fun, and sunsets are beautiful, but no one's really singing about them. They sing about sex. They sing about love with terrible lyrics. Because when you talk about sex, you can't just talk about it. You have to break into poetry, break into song. It's something that connects us deeply with this other dimension of what it means to be human and what it means to be created in the image of God. We see a distortion that sex is an imperative we see a distortion that sex is merely a physical experience, experience. And then we see another one, that sex is everything. That finding a sexual partner or partners will be the key to our happiness. And we attach the, the weight of our desires, the key to everything, the key to our happiness, to our future on another person. Ernest Becker, I think I've quoted this before, but he wrote in Denial of Death in 1973, which won him a Pulitzer Prize, if your partner is all, then any shortcoming in him becomes a major threat to you. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our feelings of nothingness, to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, humans cannot give us this. 
You see, when we build our identity upon sex, when we build our identity upon money, upon what we can achieve, upon our childhood, upon who we are in and of ourselves, when we build our identity apart from God, it's inherently unstable. Without God, apart from him, our sense of worth, our sense of who we are may seem solid on the outside, but it can desert you in a moment. When you build your life on satiating your lusts, what happens when the payoff isn't there any longer? What happens when it takes more and more? What happens when your sexual partner turns against you? What happens when your lusts create a rift between you and your loved one? What happens, maybe even worse, when your lusts create a rift within yourself and you don't even you can't distinguish anymore between the person who is urging caution and the person who is pleading to go forward? Sex isn't everything, and it's a terribly unstable thing to build our identity upon. So what's the alternative? What does Jesus tell us in this text? We need to see lust, what it isn't, and then lust, what it is, quickly, and then we'll end. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice how he doesn't define lust. He doesn't equate lust and sexual desire. These two things are not conflated. They're not the same thing. He doesn't say, don't look at a woman ever and admire her beauty. That would be an almost impossible virtue. He's not referring here to a passing attraction, to a simple thought that runs through your mind. He's disconnecting these fleeting thoughts And he's disconnecting lust and sexual desire. And he's connecting, however, our lust not just with our eyes, with our hands, but with our heart, with who we are. And lust is two things. One, it's impersonal desire. You see, this is not a a passing attraction, but it's it's not just a thought, but it's a, a deliberate harboring of a desire for an illicit relationship. It's not noticing, but it's gazing. It's meditating. It's seeking to possess something. And it's seeking to possess that person rather than uniting with that person socially, spiritually, economically, and fully. And this is why Jesus connects sex with marriage, is that in that sex is an integrative act. And certainly that 19-year-old quoted in the Boston Globe gets that that sex is an inherently integrative act. And sex without commitment is saying, basically, I want to use you for pleasure. I want to gratify myself with your body, but I want to keep my options open. (laughs) I want to use you and then have the ability to move on after I have. And it puts the self, it puts our own desires at the center of the universe and says that my personal gratification is more important than you as a person. It's treating other people as commodities to be used and exchanged for visceral pleasure. And this can happen in marriage just the same as it can happen outside of marriage. So just because we happen to have lived morally, outwardly, upright lives... We don't get any points by this passage. 
We don't get points just because we've stayed married and we've stayed faithful. Because what God really wants, what Jesus is really getting is, do you love your spouse with your whole heart? Do you engage with him or her sexually in order to benefit them and to draw them in to a relationship with Jesus, to make them more lovely and beautiful, to give of yourself? The Bible talks about sex as this beautiful, extravagant act, but only insofar as it's integrated. You can't have sex with someone whilst trying to stay independent of that person at the same time. You can, technically, but it'll drive you crazy. It'll disintegrate you spiritually. Lust is impersonal desire. Lust is inordinate desire. We live in a city that's on a river, and if you walk into um, Old Town, you can see some of the plaques on some of the buildings that designate where the Willamette River crested at a certain flood, and there's been many. Any river will overflow its banks as the amount of water in its channel exceeds the river's capacity to hold the water. And so any of these distortions that we looked at can cause our sexual appetites to overflow their banks. They can cause us to twist and use our sexuality improperly, or they can diminish and make our, make our sexual desires dwindle to a trickle where the riverbed dries out. It can overflow its boundaries. It can dry out. When Tiger Woods was caught in adultery a few years ago, he had to face the music, and it's one of those apologies that had some stunning candor and insight. What does he say? He, know, he notices that sex has boundaries, that sex has to be connected. It has to be an integrated act with commitment, that you're making a promise with your body, regardless of whether you intend to or not. He says, I ran straight through the boundaries that a married couple should live by. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I was wrong. I was foolish. I don't get to play by different rules. The same boundaries that apply to everyone apply to me. The Bible is not saying squash your sexual desire nor follow your sexual desire without limit, but channel it appropriately. It's like a riverbed. And sex that, is, that happens within those boundaries flows appropriately. The word Jesus uses here for lust is not sexual desire, but it's an over-desire. It's an idolatrous desire. It's how we take something good, like money, like food, like drink, that we take sex and we try to get something out of it that we can't get from anyone except God. This is why we sing songs about sex, why it feels so urgent, why it feels so apocalyptic, because we've attached these cosmic desires to sex, and we're asking for it to fulfill us in a way that only God can that he means for sex to be a tool of that, but not in and of itself. And if that's what Jesus is saying, then our sexual behavior can lie in the right channels, and yet our inordinate desire that we place upon it can cause it to overflow its boundaries. It can cause us to destroy the person next to us. It can cause us to destroy our spouse. We can be 
morally upright people, in other words, and yet use sex to answer the question of, am I somebody? Am I truly loved? Am I accepted unconditionally? The sad thing about my friend's encounter with this person in Las Vegas is that that's what he was trying to answer. And he was willing to do whatever with his body, and he was willing to spend a year's worth of salary to try and answer that question, if only for a moment. Am I somebody? Please tell me I'm somebody. Until we get these answers from God himself, we'll use sex as a substitute, and our desires will overflow the banks because no human can adequately answer these questions. No human can consistently and convincingly enough tell you that you're something, that you matter, that you're important, that you are loved unconditionally. No human can tell us that to the degree that it will feed our souls to the depth that we want them to be fed. But thankfully, this is exactly what Jesus says that he wants to say to you. These are the exact questions that Jesus wants to give an affirmative to. That he says that he's not just the king, not just the Lord, not just the master, but he is the servant bridegroom. You see, if if he's only a taskmaster, then we better get busy. We better quit our lust immediately or Jesus won't like us anymore. But if he's the bridegroom, then he comes in and he sits with us in our pain. He sits with us in our struggle. He doesn't hate us, but he hates what sin is doing to us. He hates the way that we are misaligning our sexual desires in ways that draw us away from him and disintegrate us. And Jesus wants to come in and say, I understand, I know you're using sex in a way that's a substitute for what you really want, and I want to give it to you. Because if he's the bridegroom, it means that he's deeply in love with you that he finds you radiant and lovely, and that his interminable approval will never end, and that you don't have to find your meaning chasing after sex, because you'll keep chasing, and you'll keep chasing, and you'll never catch it there. It means you don't have to crush your spouse with expectations that can only be met in God, and only then can sex be integrated integrating rather than disintegrating. Don't we all want what Dan Fogelberg sings to his lover? Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, higher than any bird ever flew, longer than there's been stars up in the heavens, I've been in love with you. Except he's lying, right? He hasn't loved this person longer than the stars have been in the heavens. He's lying. That's what we want to hear, but no human person can give us that, can promise us that. Jesus is the only person that can say this of you and say it without a smile, say it without a a crooked grin, say it without his fingers crossed behind his back. Other people may say that, especially during sex, but it's only Jesus that can say that and not be lying. 
And what this means is that our lusts are but glimmers of what Jesus longs to give us. It means that your lusts don't define you. And if you're a person in struggle this morning, it means that nonetheless Jesus loves you. It means nonetheless your lusts, your sexual history does not have to define you any longer. That you can come to Jesus and he can put his approval on you in spite of your sin. Not when you get your act together. It means you don't have to hide in shame. And it means that the church should be a healing place. It should be an inviting place. It should be a place with doors open to those with sexual sin and sexual disruption and sexual identities that are different from what we may agree with. It means that we should have doors open to those who are unlike us sexually, and we should invite them in to meet Jesus. How can the church be a healing place like that? Well, the church, each of us, have to come to this table, which says that no matter your sexual history, how you choose to define yourself sexually, we are all in need of grace. No matter if you've been married and you've only had sex with your wife and you've been faithful and you love her, you are just as needy of God's grace as the person who is sexually exploited, the person who is sexually identifying this person who is sexually in transformation. You are just in need of grace as that person, and so therefore the doors of the church should be open so that they can come in and get find Jesus and find healing, just as we are, all of us. And so I invite you to come to the table, which says that we are all in need of grace, equally so. And therefore, if we believe that, and insofar as we believe that, we can be a healing place that has a safe place for sinners in the pew. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would enable us to be loving people. That as we seek to follow what your word says to us about our sex life, as we seek to conform our lives to what you say is best and most consistent with Christian discipleship, that that would not then allow us any way to turn towards someone else and look down our noses at them, to exclude them from meeting you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be tender to the outsider, tender to the, the sexually exploited, tender to the sexually confused, because we ourselves are sexually broken people, and I pray that you would heal us, heal us inside these walls, and may these walls be invitations to others to come inside and find healing as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.